Welcome to the Pyramid Podcast, where three lads discuss all things the English football pyramid. On today's episode, we'll have a look back at the Premier League action, including a thumping win for City in the Manchester derby, as well as wins for Tottenham, Arsenal and Liverpool. We'll look back at the main results from the EFL, including the new Premier Pod Cup holder, Southampton. And Laurie will talk us through Yeovil's 10 in a row in the league. I'm your host, Alex Murphy. And once again, I'm joined by Tom Lawrence and Tom Gallagher. Uh, boys, we'll start with the Manchester derby. Laurie, come to you first for a bit of a... Uh, neutral opinion on the game and and the performance from both City and United? I think it's the best I've seen City in a long time. I think it's important to say, I know there's going to be a lot of uh, negativity towards United now and probably rightly so this week, but I thought City were class. I think it's the best I've seen Jack Grealish play in a long time, although I still don't think there was any assists or goals for him. Um, Guardiola had a really good game. Bernardo Silva was brilliant knitting it all together. And uh, yeah, I thought you came up against, you being United, came up against a very well-polished City team that looked back to somewhere near their very best yesterday. And Haaland on another day could have had four. Um, and the scary thing is it didn't really look like they went for gold. I think they were sort of in second gear. And it was a little bit like an FA Cup game against a, a Premier League team against a League Two team where you really want the League Two team to do well. And they start OK. I didn't think United started too badly in the first 10, 15 minutes and then suddenly they're ground down and ground down and then a couple goals go in and, and kills it off. So um, I think a big talking point for me, Gary Neville said this and there's a few things he said yesterday that I didn't agree with, but the change at half time to bring Amrabat off and kind of empty midfield and leave Eriksen in there with McTominay, who's used to marauding forward at the moment, seemed to allow City just the freedom of Old Trafford um, and, and, and sort of didn't give them an awful lot to think about in there. Rashford missed a, a big chance in the second half that on another day maybe would have changed the momentum. But overall, you know, Man City deserved to win against what ended up being quite a lackluster performance from Man United and then culminating in a few embarrassing incidents towards the end where Bruno Fernandes was sliding into needless challenges and Anthony was getting into tantrums and probably should have been sent off as well with his altercation with um, the, the winger Doku. So... Yeah, ended up being a lot worse than it should have been probably for United, but they did come up against a good City team who uh, are obviously, needless to say, right in the title mix. Tomo? Yeah, can't really disagree with much of what Laura said, to be honest. We predicted, didn't we, that um, that City would win comfortably, and last, and they did. They Their XG for the game was four, exactly four, which is the second highest in the, in the Premier League this season. Um they, apart from, like you say, the first five, ten minutes, they completely dominated. Bernardo Silva looked absolutely class. Um, he's been directly involved in seven goals in 11 games against United now. So he always does well against United. And Erling Haaland in three games against United, um, I think he scored five goals and got three assists. And the United fans, <laughs> when he scores a chant in Kino at him, and it just, you might as well not bother because it just, Spurs him on, and he he seems to love playing against us. Um, at the end of the day, City are just a much better team than United. It's just it is just disappointing the sort of the manner of defeat. And Laurie, you mentioned there a couple of the embarrassing incidents at the end of the game. It is just it's humiliating when like Anthony's coming on and doing that. You'd like, and then Bruno, he's supposed to be a captain, and he's just not acting. Like one, I don't think he's ever really got that captain's um, got captain material in him anyway. Um, Roy Keane said he should he should be stripped of the captain's armband. I think Darren Bent and um, 
who's the fellow who presents Darren Bent's show on Talksport, Andy, Andy Goldstein. Goldstein. Yeah, Andy Goldstein. They're both saying that he should be stripped of the captaincy. Martin Keown said he should be stripped of the captaincy. And, I, and I'm sort of half agree with them. But at the end of the day, if he's not captain, who is? Because there is literally yeah. no one in there. And also, if, if you do do that, Tomo, Bruno on his day, and we, you know, he does have games like that against big sides. That's been highlighted that he doesn't always turn up in big games. But on his day, he is the creative outlet for United. If you strip him of the captaincy, he's one of the, I'd say, probably the most talented players in the squad. That that could be him just going, right, that would do for me at United. I, I want out. I'm not getting any younger. I want to go and win some trophies. I think to do that would be a huge call. And Honestly, honestly mate, I'm not asked one bit. If some, if like, when, the difference between United and City, like when someone wants to leave City, Guardiola just, he doesn't fight it. He doesn't try and keep them. He just goes, if you want to go, go. Like, yeah. oh, I want players at this club. I'm not saying Bruno wants to go or anything, but but if you strip him, if you're worried about stripping him of the captaincy and then him throwing a, like, a hissy fit and wanting to go, like, we've got big, like, I'm not really worried about that. His performances over the last, basically since he signed his big contract, have, has not been great. Obviously, United haven't been great, so it's hard, it's hard to sort of criticise individuals too much. Just feels like there's just no plan, and like it's the the manner of defeat. And you're looking at the game in the second half when he brought on Mason Mount, and I'm I'm looking at it going, what formation are we playing? What what position is Mount? What position is Fernandez? They're like in between right and centre mid, and just getting picked apart easily. And it looks like the players aren't fit enough. Do you know what I mean? They're not getting to the player quick enough, and. And they're sort of laboured, but I just think it's because whatever plan Ten Hag's got in place, the players don't believe in it. And if you don't don't believe in it, one hundred and ten percent against a team like Man City, you get picked apart and embarrassed, and it was humiliating. And I'm not going to lie, I sank quite a lot of red wine last night to get over it because it was, it honestly, it's just it's shit. It's just shit. So, just another point as well, just on the post-match analysis is I think Jamie Carragher was saying about every sort of top half team now in the Prem has this kind of play out from the back style and build up play and you know there's this general defender step into midfield and build the play up that sort of thing but he doesn't see that with United we almost are a complete and utter counter-attack side and very direct where we're looking to sweep a ball out to Rashford or Garnacho or Anthony or whoever Bruno when he's out there out on the wings and try and get the ball in and, and score a goal or a moment from someone. Do you think that Ten Hag just hasn't got the tactics for a top prem side? No, Ten Hag hasn't been able to implement that high press um possession style football because and no manager no Man United manager has has done this basically have been able to convince that group of players, that group of overpaid souls basically to to work as hard as Klopp convinces the Liverpool players, or to work as hard as Guardiola convin- um, convinces the City players. If at the end of the day, if you watch Brashford, he's uh, he's basically our best player. Obviously, he's in terrible form right now. But you watch him off the ball, and it just causes us issues like all the time. And then if you if you say take. Jack Grealish off the ball. He's working his absolute socks off because he knows 
if he doesn't play well or doesn't do every bit, every bit of detail correctly, he will not play the next game. And I think Danny Murphy made the point on match of the day too, where he said basically the players aren't doing aren't doing the basics right and aren't working hard, but they're not getting punished for it. So so like Rashford, he looks he just looks lazy. And then yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if we, we had this discussion just just before the podcast. I don't know if you can get like a a Postacoglu, a Guardiola, a Klopp, any of these guys into United and, and they do the job because it just seems like completely toxic from top to bottom. Um, yeah, it's, it's a shame, mate. I've... Look, Laurie talks about, though, Dunny, about, you know, Ange Postacoglu and you'd run through a brick wall for him and his players seem to be doing that. He's managed to implement that in a very short space of time. I don't think, I know I know Tottenham have got, people are saying Tottenham only have one game a week, but he's had a matter of weeks with that squad hasn't he since the summer he's in months rather than anything close to years with with that team I don't think that their squad man for man is necessarily way way better sort of standard of players you think about how they were playing last year under a manager that kind of had the shackles on and didn't look great is it not that the main they've now lost Harry Kane is it not the main difference from them a really motivational manager with a clear ethos that has been implemented Laura yeah I think it is I I don't think I think Ange Postacoglu, for instance, falls into a category of fantastic man manager. Not to say he's not um, good tactically. I think Pep Guardiola is the best tactician coach in the world. Um, I think Klopp has probably got a very, very um, certain style that he likes and is probably a good man, man manager too. I'm not sure Eric Ten Hag falls into the category of a good tactician or a good man manager. And I think that's probably shows in the lacklustre kind of nature of the losses for Man United. But they've got good enough players to win enough games to be in the top six, seven or eight every year. And you always are. We're only judging Man United based on the level of success they've had before it, with Alex Ferguson in the 90s and the early 2000s, winning Champions Leagues and winning Premier Leagues. Obviously, it's been a big drop off from that. But you're still in the top eight clubs in the country. So the players are doing something. It's not an easy league. To, if you're really bad, you'll finish in the bottom half or down no, near the bottom. So they're doing Laura. something. Laura, just quickly though, like mo- at the end of the day, I know most leagues are basically based off um, wet, like like most expensive wage bills and how much you spend, right? Usually, if your wage bill is the highest and and you spend the most money in the summer, you're you're right up there. And United, for the last ten years, have consistently got the highest wage bill in the league and spend the most money. Yet we're like you just said there. Well, we're not doing that much wrong because we're still in the top eight. It's like, come on, you you've got to compare United to basically City, basically to City because we're the and maybe Chelsea because we're the only ones who spend that much on wages, spend that much on transfers. You, like, so when we're disappointed that we're we're fifth or sixth or whatever, it's because of the expectation where if you spend that much money, you should be at the top. Yeah, or challenge I'm it. not saying. Yeah, I'm not saying you shouldn't be disappointed. I'm just making the point that you are still in the top eight teams of the country. So you've obviously got the players to do something. Like I've always said, I don't buy into the... The reason that you can spend the most on wages and the most on transfers is because you're a very good commercially viable club. You make a lot of money that way. You obviously get 70000 through the gate every week or whatever. There's always a lot of talk about how nothing will change until the Glazers go. And Gary Neville made this analogy yesterday. He said, oh, you, if... 
if kids are underperforming at school, do you blame the kids or should you be blaming the headmaster, alluding to um, the Glazers? Well, I think you should blame the teacher. And the teacher is Eric Ten Hag, unfortunately. And I think if you ca- if you carry on with mediocre managers, you're going to get mediocre results. And I think another thing, you talk about wanting to maybe see a style of playing out from the back or maybe seeing something a little bit more attractive or front-footed. Well, you don't appoint managers to do that. You've appointed... Eric Tan Hag, who may have had some kind of style that works in the Eredivisie, but that's a completely different kettle of fish to the Premier League. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, whose only job in the Premier League ever was Cardiff, and they needed, he left before, just before he got him relegated. And before that, Jose Mourinho, who is known for being more of a pragmatic defensive coach. So you haven't had someone come in to try and implement one of these sort of attractive front-footed styles that would maybe make the fans think, oh, even if we're losing, at least we're good to watch. And that's what I'd like to see at Man United. I'm not saying specifically like Marcelo Bielsa, but someone of that ilk to come in, maybe a deserve be at Brighton, and just someone that you know has got a clear tactical philosophy that's done it in England before, to come in and see if you can do it at United. And I think if you did that, you would see results. I'm not saying you'd win the league because you've got some very good competition. That's got to be taken into account as well. But I think the United fans would be happier if you saw yourselves playing a lot more attractive football that teams are really scared to play against because at the moment teams have Man United and you've lost that fear factor no one really fears United anymore every every single game in the Premier League you think the other team's got a chance whereas if Man City and Liverpool play or even Arsenal now quite often you're watching it thinking there's no chance the other team's going to win here and it only happens once in a blue moon whereas with United what if you won five games no, won five games this season lost the rest yeah so there, there in which lies the problem for me I've, I've said it I, like, I think I uh, Eric Ten Hag's done an okay job, and that's what I'm talking about. Like they're still in the top sort of what I don't know where they finished last year, five, six, seven, something like that. And that's where you are. And until you bring in a better manager, that's where you'll stay. I think you can't talk about the heart and the desire of the players, and um, you know signings not working out and things like that, and blame anyone other than the manager. I don't think. Can I? I can I just read, yeah, a, on, read a quote from Pep Guardiola when he was asked about the difference between um, City and United, and he said. I have said many times we we all go in the same direction. The chairman, the manager, the CEO, the players. Um, in my first season, I had unconditional support. And Laura, you talk about that school analogy. Obviously, the teacher needs to be in the same direction. The players, the, the students need to be in the same. But the head teacher is the one who sets the environment and and creates the environment for success. And it feels like like you say, Ten, Ten Hag, at the end of the day, when Ten Hag got appointed, he had a clear philosophy and it worked under Ajax. He, he had he was a success, successful manager at Ajax and yeah. and he did he did well in the Champions League a couple of times as well. So it was obviously wasn't just in the Netherlands where he was, he was successful. It's just the United environment makes you sort of, it churns you out and spits you out and basically turns you to shit. So I, right. I I I fully back Eric Ten Hag. I don't want to change manager at all. Um but I I would even question say for instance if we hired Guardiola who is the best manager in the world I would question whether he could get sort of the United team playing well and successful again because it's just it's just rotten basically. I I would just say we'll, we'll move on uh, boys from from United, but I would just say the worry for me is is that last year would probably be coined a successful first season. Um, 
for Manchester United with winning a trophy, finishing in the top four, getting back to Champs League, going on to some decent runs and wins and getting some decent results against big sides, albeit in home games. I think United have gone backwards from last year. I think the players have obviously either don't like Ten Hag. You can already see that stories are starting to get leaked. You've got the Sancho thing. You've got, he's not playing, he's now dropping his players like Anthony, who's a 90 million pound winger, mount a 60 million pound midfielder that he's brought in to implement his style. He's not playing them. He's playing Bruno out of position. He's playing McTominay, who he wanted out in the summer. He's playing Maguire, Evans and Lindelof. And before the Manchester derby saying that's a tactical reason ahead of five times champs league winner Varane and a a actual left back in Regulon who he signed as well, albeit needed to because Shaw injured. Um, I think he's now peddling to find results, stepping away from his ethos and what this style of play is. And I don't think he's going to be able to implement it. And I don't think that he will be able to turn it around. Um, it's just whether he gets given the time now to do it before um, the board start to make big decisions on his future. But we will obviously... There's loads of games coming up. I mean, you boys are off to Old Trafford, aren't you, on Wednesday to uh, to watch them against Newcastle in the EFL Cup. That's the sort of game where in a cup competition at home midweek, hopefully United can uh, look to, to to sort of, you know, pick up a win and change that momentum around against a decent side in Newcastle. But just be interesting to see, won't it? Is he going to stick with your Bruno's, your Rashford's? I mean, he said on Rashford that a goal's coming for Rashford. He just needs a moment and he plays every minute of most games. So he's going to get that goal eventually but for me if I'm Rashford that's no pressure on me to score then because I'm just no I'm starting every game so um yeah you boys will have to report back on Thursday's pod on Wednesday's display in person and the atmosphere in Old Trafford we'll move on so uh mentioned Spurs um earlier Lauro and Friday night football just cast your minds back to that uh Tottenham went to to Crystal Palace um and won 2-1 Madison heavily involved in the first, albeit an own goal, and then Sonny on the score sheet. Palace kind of rallied late on, but yet another three points for Tottenham. And I've started now to see in the media, uh, Lauro, on TalkSport and other areas, saying that they are genuine title contenders now and keep touching on this one game a week with no other distractions. Yeah, and you have to agree at the moment because they're top of the league and they just seem to be dealing with anything that's put in front of them at the moment. And they've got some really, really high-performing players in Son and Madison. Um, Romero's looking like he's back to his best. Bentaker's coming back into the fold now. So there's lots of positivity there. But we know what the Premier League's like. Someone, I think it was Carragher, said about City yesterday. Normally in the first half of the league, it just looks like City are getting ready for the second half. And whilst they're getting ready, they're, they're only two points off the top of the league. So it's about how they respond to another team winning every single week, whether that's Arsenal, whether that's City, whether that's both of them. And that's why it's really difficult to call them genuine title contenders until we're probably after Christmas. But for the time being, you know, they just keep winning, don't they? And they look really, really good. They've got Chelsea next week. That'll be a tough game. Um, but they look like they've got players that are enjoying themselves. I mean, they're one club that you talk about toxicity you felt like there's it's been that kind of relationship with Daniel Levy and the Tottenham fans for quite a long time but they've got the brand new stadium they've got all the facilities they've spent a little bit of money as well it looks like they've spent their money a little bit wiser in recent years and they've got a team that's playing really 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 well at the moment but like I said they're going to need to respond to challenges from a very competitive top three or four teams in the Premier League and we're going to have to see what they do when inevitably some of their top players get injured because if you take Son and Madison out 
all of a sudden it's a very different proposition going forward when maybe it's Richarlison and Manuel Solomon or whatever. So long way to go. But uh, yes, they're title challenges as we sit here today. But we can be a lot more serious about that, I think, in, in the few months to come, quite obviously. Bye. Yeah, so you got they got Chelsea at home on Monday, next Monday, and um and then Wolves away the game before the international break. Do you think if they can get through those with two wins, then it then I'll I'll probably back them as serious title contenders. They look they look great, don't they? Laura's make a couple of good points with their their sort of their squad depth. I'm just interested because James Madison was quite was injured quite a lot, wasn't he, at Leicester? So I almost kind of half expect him to get injured a couple of times this season. And it'd be interesting to see how Spurs do without him because he's just unbelievable. And I'm with my United hat, United hat on, I'm just thinking, why did we sign Mason Mount for 60 million and left and left James Madison, go, like, let him go to Tottenham for 50 million? Because Madison was a boyhood Man United fan, wasn't he? And yeah, he's, not, he's not going to play, is he, Madison, at United? He, he plays left wing or... 10 and Bruno and Rashford have completely monopolized those positions, but I completely agree. He'd, he'd be unreal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting, or oh, it's an interesting comparison to the United one. Cause we're talking, I'm talking, I'm half talking about how no manager in the world can get such a toxic club working at United. And then, uh, but when we talk about Tottenham last season under Conte and they had Paratici as their sporting director banned from football for two years for corruption or whatever it was. Um, you've got Daniel Levy getting um, protested against every week. Conte basically saying that the club, the history of the club is is crap and the, the, the culture of the club isn't good enough. It's not a winning... And then Ange Postacoglu just comes in, does his thing, and it's like he's completely changed it on his head. So, uh, yeah, it's... So mate, there is hope there. It there is hope there for United. But you you are right, Noro. They've got the best training facilities. They've got the best stadium. Like so, actually, the environment is set up for success, and it just needed someone like Postecoglou to come in. Um, yeah, you said earlier on that Pep Guardiola said everyone's in the same direction, but someone needs to lead that direction. And no one's been able to do it at Man United for a long time since Alex Ferguson. Bearing in mind, the Glazers came in in two thousand and five for United. They won five league titles in the Champions League since the Glazers have been there. So they've had some success with a good manager. And Ange Postecoglou, what he's got in, what he's done is come in and got everyone in the same direction. All of those Tottenham players look like they're having the time of their lives. Son playing out of the game, Madison, back four, the midfielders, Basuma, no one could get a tune out of him for the last year either, albeit with injuries. So he's the one that's come in and said, great, we've got the facilities, great, we've got a little bit of back in, now I'm going to do this. And that's what Man United don't have. So that's the comparison there. And he's, in my in my view, he's obviously good tactically. He's got him playing good football, but he's a proper man manager. That every, And I've said this on one of the podcasts before. It's not just about the players believing in him and wanting to run through a brick wall for him. I think a manager has to manage up well as well and talk to the hierarchy about what he expects from them. And it feels like it's early days, but it feels like they're all on the same page. But he will have obstacles to overcome and we'll see how he reacts to those. That's a great point, actually, Laurie, because you read like there's normally a fallout when Man United do their sort of annual manager sacking where there's a deep dive where one of the journalists goes into it. And uh, Mourinho and Solskjaer have both in their interview spoken about 
not having the backing for the players that they want to go and get. They'd have non-footballing people. Um, I forget the name of Ed Woodward, who was in charge before saying, no, I don't agree that we need him. And, you know, we saw some of the names that Solskjaer is after and Mourinho had targets as well. So it's really important to be able to manage upwards, isn't it, to the people who then are signing off on these deals. United don't even have a sporting director or director of football that Ten Hag's had to sort of report into and get veto sign off of. He's kind of had free reign to sign who he's wanted um, albeit we might have overpaid, which makes it a little bit more worrying for him. Um, just on the Spurs fixtures, actually, thinking, you know, Spurs had um, Crystal Palace. They've got Chelsea and Wolves before the international break. So before Spurs' last fixture, um, the Fulham game, they've then prepped for the Palace game. They'll then have over a week to prep for the Chelsea game and then the same for the Wolves game. In that time, teams like United have had to prep for the weekend before, then the Copenhagen fixture, then the Manchester derby, now Newcastle midweek. Then it will be next weekend's Premier League fixture. Then I think we've got Copenhagen again in the Champs League. Then there'll be a game before we then go on. So this kind of ethos that Ten Hagen trying to put their hours in on the training ground might be a bit more difficult when every time you get a player in after a day's rest, you're then looking ahead to the tactics and the game for the next fixture. Spurs must have days where they're not worrying about their next opponents. They're just having fun and trying to learn the Ange ball. So that non-European awful finish for them last year has been an absolute blessing in disguise, really, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, you're right. They've It's a big advantage. I think Le- Leicester half. They they won the league, didn't didn't they? When they weren't in Europe, I know it was a massive shock, but that was a big advantage. And managers always talk about getting time on the training field, but at the end of the day, when you're a big club and you're challenging for the biggest honours in the world, um, in football, you like you're playing every three days, you're playing every four days, so just need to get on with it. But yeah, it is an advantage for Spurs. It's the like we said before, the biggest advantage I think will, will be the fact that it will help keep those players fit and and like they'll be able to well if say for instance if Madison got a knock against Palace he didn't but if he did he's got 10 days rest to until the Chelsea game um and yeah so look it's a big advantage and I like they they're 100% getting in the top 4 now um in my opinion injuries wise bearing and then and then it's just a case of if they can keep everyone fit, then yeah, why not? Why not? And that's what that's I, what I, I think. Go on. I was going to say that's what Anne says, doesn't he? He just says why not? Like there's nothing in the rules to say that Tottenham can't win the league, so why not? I don't. I don't think if you're talking about total challenges, you can't really look at the fixtures too much. We can't be saying they need like, if they can get through Wolves and Chelsea. You don't you ever you don't ever look at Man City fixtures really, do you? Other than like away at Arsenal, you need to. Be, I think Alex Ferguson used to say you can't lose any more than five, and um, it's probably even less than that now. City probably normally lose two or three a season, so they just need to take it a game at a time. And one of the earlier podcasts, just after the first round, I think it was of the Carabao Cup, you boys were talking about how Ange had had his first blip on his record because he put out a second string team against Fulham. Well, he didn't prioritise the League Cup. Yeah, they got knocked out on penalties, but none of his first team has got injured and he doesn't have a game midweek now. He's got that nice fresh week to keep Madison and Son and all the big boys in check and he can go on to the next league game against Chelsea with a, a full deck of cards, if you like. So, yeah, I mean, we don't need to say it anymore, do we? I love I love what Big Ange is doing and uh, long may it continue. I'd love them to win the league, obviously. 
yeah. Well, we'll stay in North London, um, boys, and we'll go to Arsenal. So they had a bit of a uh, route of Sheffield United, probably to be expected, but 5-0. Um, but interestingly, a hat-trick Tomo for Inketia. And I think we've spoke on previous pods about our Arsenal lacking the goal scorer to put the ball in the back of the net um, to win them the title between Inketia and Jesus. But nothing wrong with Inketia's display uh, at the weekend and, yeah, grabbing a hat-trick. Yeah, look, I think he's he's a good player to have in your squad, basically. Um, but getting a hat-trick against the piss-poor Sheffield United um, is sort of not the biggest thing. Like, do you know what I'm saying? It's not the most impressive thing in the world, albeit um, his third goal was obviously fantastic. Um, I think he's a good squad player to have, but doesn't change my opinion on the fact that if he's leading your line, if he's leading the line, you won't win the Premier League. He's just that level below... Um, but he's a good addition to have in the squad. Obviously, I'd play him in the Europa League games. Obviously, they're in the Champions League this year. But do you know what I mean? I'd, I'd just he's a good backup player. Um, yeah, the game, the game itself. It, like I, I said, it was just going to be, it was just going to be um, a whitewash, really. And it was. Um, there's not really much to add. Sheffield United, they're done, aren't they? But uh, do you know what I think? Sheffield United, they sold um, Ndai, didn't they? Their best striker from last year. They sold Sander Burge, their best midfielder from last year. Um, it feels like they almost, they, they've been preparing for the championship ever since they were promoted, if you know what I mean. So, so and I, I hope Heckenbottom doesn't get the boot because I think that in their minds, they're probably preparing for the championship already. So, um but yeah, look, five 0 great win for Arsenal. Um, they'll move, they'll move on to the West Ham game in the EFL Cup on the week, um, full of confidence. And Eddie and Ketia, just like any striker at that level, like goals breathe confidence. And I'm sure he'll go on a little run now. Um, but yeah, just in terms of his level, I don't think he he's quite he's that like that level below the best. Yeah. But what's important is he is good enough to go and score a hat-trick against a team like Sheffield United. And it was interesting to see Arteta rested Gabriel and rested Odegaard at the weekend. And albeit it was a force in force change with Nketiah coming in, he can now make three or four quite serious changes to the, to the starting eleven. Smith Rowe started the weekend, Havertz did as well, um, Kirior, and still go and romp a Premier League team. And that shows a level in itself as well. So they... Talk about. I don't want to keep going back to Man United, but Man United going against Sheffield United. All of a sudden, you think, "Oh, please let us win this football match." Arsenal can go into that seconds in the league, thinking, "Right, we can rest Odegaard, we can rest Gabriel, we haven't got Jesus, but we're still going to go and thump them anyway." So I thought that was good squad rotation from him. Again, with all the games that they've got coming up with Champions League and whatever cups they're in. And, uh, yeah, impressive display, obviously, to blow him away. And it's good to see Eddie and Keita get a hat-trick. And it'd be great to see him go on now and put a run of form together and keep getting some goals. Because he needs to, he needs a season where he gets into good, good double figures. And if he can get 10 to 15 on top of what you're going to get from your Martinelli's and your Sackers and your Odegaards, like we've spoken about before, that'll be a really good contribution. And he'll be doing exactly what he should be doing in that team, which is being a good sort of second striker. Well, he's... He's had a couple of years now at Arsenal where he's not, you know, he, he had his kind of lead time and then in and about the squad, but still playing a bit under 23s. He got five goals in 21 in two years ago. He got four in 30 uh, last season and now he's got five in 10 this year, albeit he was 
two and nine before the weekend, but he's still gone and scored that hat trick. So he's now he's now leveled the amount of league goals that he got last year. And that's a third of the way through. And you do see that sometimes in strikers, don't you? You know, they have that breakthrough year where he'll now be looking at 15, 20, as you say, Loro. Um, and that can maybe be the goals that are the the difference. And we say we're not at the level of the other strikers, and I agree with you, but then I started to think about the other teams. It's like, well, actually, Haaland aside, Spurs are having to play Son, who's a winger through the middle. Uh, Liverpool kind of fluctuate between Gappo and Nunes, who and either the most kind of prolific in front of goal and they kind of rotate and sometimes they play Jota there. So actually, you know, Nketiah as an out-and-out striker could be a bit of a, a difference maker for Arsenal if he can consistently start to put the ball in the back of the net. Um, but yeah, they, they've they obviously got fixtures, haven't they? They've got West Ham in the Cup. Um, they've then got Seville in the Champs League. I think they've got, obviously, we'll have a Prem game at the weekend, which is Newcastle away, which is a huge game. So they got West Ham away, Newcastle away and Seville. It's quite impressive that they're keeping up that pace whilst maintaining all of those uh, fixtures, whereas Spurs are just in the league. But yeah, good to see those two North London clubs up there and making it interesting. Moving on to another team that are in the top four. And, you know, I keep saying sneaky good start and now a fully good start. But Liverpool won 3-0 against Forest. They're really starting to now pick up the pace and are right up there. I was looking at the league actually just to see how far off they how far off it they were. And they're actually three points off top. They've scored the joint most goals in the league alongside Arsenal. They've only conceded nine in those 10 games. Looking at their team, it looks like they're strong all over again. Van Dijk's back getting a run in the team. They've sorted their midfield out. They're looking prolific in front of goal. Tomo, are they now right in the title mix? And will they be will Klopp be thinking that they're right in it and looking to win it? Yeah, that's Klopp's mentality, isn't it? He does. He he wants to win the lot. I feel like we we all sort of um, didn't expect this from Liverpool at this stage because of how basically because of the the midfield overhaul. But actually, that Dominic Szoboszlai is fitted in perfectly. McAllister's slowly but surely getting there and starting to improve. Graven Birch is coming into the team looking good as well. Um, Salah's just Salah is just like an efficient monster. Um, Nunes is getting a run of games and, and he scored a good goal on the weekend. Um, it feels like they're not quite at the level they were when they won the league, but it does feel like they can go on a run and they are they're, they're in that run now and they look great, they look formidable. Um, and Klopp. Klopp's basically the second best manager in the world, isn't it? You've got to give Guardiola that that title. But yeah, Klopp's basically the second best manager. Um, he's consistently overperforming their the way they spend their money. Like Liverpool are a rung below United's and Chelsea's and City's for how much they spend on wages and transfers, etc. And Klopp consistently outperforms that. He's um and it feels like that this is going to be another year where they where they challenge definitely and for the premier league it did feel like it needs it definitely needs that it would be great to have a two three um or at least it could be a four team title race this year if you chuck tottenham arsenal liverpool and city together um so it's exciting times for the prem that everyone like that it seems like these clubs are getting better and better and catching up with city uh 
So yeah, I, I do think they'll challenge. Maybe, maybe they won't. Just just for the simple fact that City is City, I think City will win the league. But um, I do think Liverpool are getting closer, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I want that title race as well, and I'd like as many teams in it as possible. And I think look back to what I thought at the start of the season that like I said quite often, I don't, just don't really trust that Liverpool team. And a big part of that was that midfield. And you just look at it on paper, even now, the midfield for the weekend, Shabozlai, McAllister, Gravenberch. But then you think back to who, I know are all good players, by the way, but it just doesn't stand out. Maybe like it hasn't got like a Rice in it or it hasn't got a Rodri in it or it hasn't got maybe some of the je ne sais quoi that a couple of the other teams have got. But then you look back to the really successful Liverpool team that won the league and their main midfield that year and the Champions League, the main sort of midfield three were Fabinho, Henderson and Wijnaldum. I know you look back now and you think that was really good. But at the time, Henderson is someone that had sort of a bit of a late bloomer. No one really rated that highly. Wijnaldum came from a poor Newcastle side and came in and just gave it legs. And OK, Fabinho was very good. But they, they've never really had those sort of romantic players in midfield, have they? It's always been an engine room. So the, I just think that midfield is key. And looking at it now, we've talked about people like Curtis Jones before. I don't think you're going to win a league with him starting every week. But Shabozlai, McAllister and Gravenberch, if McAllister can get up to a... I, don't, I think he's been poorish for a lot of the season. Shabozlai's been very good. Gravenberch I've not seen a lot of, but it sounds like he's starting to make a little bit of impression. If they can get going, they've definitely got the forward players to go and get enough goals. And on paper, their back four still looks pretty good. And they've got one of the best Premier League goalkeepers we've ever had. So they're definitely going to be in the mix. And I just think that they could be as good as Tottenham and Arsenal. Are they going to get up to the heights of City and go on a good enough run to accumulate more points than them this season? Probably not. Um, but I hope so, because I just, I'm just i fed up with City winning the league, we say it every week. But um, I want Liverpool to keep winning. I want Arsenal to keep winning. And I want Spurs to keep winning. And I want City to drop as many points as possible before Christmas. So it is a proper title race. So, yeah, is that the Liverpool. Well done, what they called it, Liverpool Reloaded or 2.0. This yeah. Klopp sort of coining it as their little resurgence. He's good at doing little things like that and playing about with the media. So, um, yeah, interesting to see. Still feels like they're under the radar, though. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I can't fathom that there's no, you know, they're like our Tottenham uh, title uh, contenders on talk sport and stuff like that. And then it'll be like, and Liverpool had a good win at the weekend. I'm like, the three points off it. They've got an unbelievable team. They've got Salah, who's backfiring in the goals. Van Dijk, who's back fit. Surely they're not just like sneaking under the radar. They're fully fledged contenders. Yeah. And you think about that big VAR incident that happened at, at Tottenham. That was Tottenham v Liverpool. That goes the other way in Liverpool in the game. There's your three-point swing and they're top of the league. Yeah. So still early, early on. And everyone's still got to play each other, and not everyone's played everyone even once yet. But great to see that lots of teams are in with a sniff, and there's three points between the top four at this stage of the season because we are we have just passed the quarter way mark now. Yeah, so really good. Yeah, and, and I know it's I know it's early days as well, but that Dominic Shabozlai, right? He he was sixty million quid, exactly the same amount of money as Mason Mount, and Shabozlai looked like an absolute baller. He's unbelievably good looking, which is annoying. And he plays like Gerard and Lampard rolled into one. Um oh, that's some hybrid. No, honestly, he's unbelievable. And I, I thought his assist for Nunes on the weekend was so clever. It looked so easy, but he actually lifted the ball up so it, it didn't get um cut out. And obviously Nunes um had the easy had the easy finish, but he just seems 
he seems like because you are right when you say that that, mid, that Liverpool midfield before when it was successful before was basically it, it was a functional midfield that allowed your Trent Robertson and the front three yeah. to basically have all their creative flow. Whereas actually this midfield will be slightly different because that Shabozlai has got so much creativity um, with him as well. But yeah, you got to think. I'm Tommy, scared. Tommy, your your one of your accounts tweeted earlier um, a clip of Gary Neville pre-season saying Casemiro, Fernandez, Eriksson, uh, Mason Mount. You'd now say that Liverpool would prefer Man United's midfield to their own. Which at the time, I think you know you're looking at Curtis Jones, Harvey Elliott. Um, they'd only just, I think, were in the either signed McAllister and Shabozlai or hadn't quite got them over the line yet. Tiago, who's not getting any younger, but all of a sudden that midfield looks absolutely unbelievable. We took the Mickey out of Endo in an earlier pod, but they're now able to play Thursday nights with Curtis Jones, Harvey Elliott, and Endo leave grabbing back McAllister and Shabozlai for big league games. He he's got six decent players there that he he can rely on, and yeah, he um. Klopp's just a master, isn't he? He is, as I say, he's managing to navigate them under the radar. And we will just have a little point ahead post-international break. He's not going to like it because he's always early kickoff after international break. But half 12 on that Saturday after international break, they go to Man City. Now, if they go and get something at the Etihad, that they will not be under the radar anymore because they've got a couple of winnable games against, I think, Luton and I'll say Bournemouth, but a couple of winnable fixtures in the league. If they come back after international break and win at the Etihad, that is door blown open and we're here to win the league yeah we're all Liverpool fans that day just a, a quick one on that they keep playing 1230 I saw a conspiracy not conspiracy theory but a theory today from a few fans that said apparently Liverpool have played the most 1230 kickoffs this season out of any side and apparently they've got a massive like Asian following abroad and it's sort of a lot better timings for the Asian viewers when they're on at half 12 and apparently Newcastle have played the most games at half five on a Saturday um, which is prime time in Saudi Arabia so maybe there's a little bit of a, a theory there as to how it's being manipulated to appease different sectors of the world commercially but I, I did think to myself I don't feel like I've seen a lot of Liverpool live this year and that's probably because at 12 on a Saturday I'm normally traveling somewhere to watch Oval play or I'm already up at the ground so I agree with them I'm I'm watching and I'll be waiting to see if there's any more 12.30s for Liverpool and any more 5.30s for the tune. Well, hopefully Man United get taken over by Australians so they can put them on at midnight so they don't have to fucking watch it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, Liverpool, unbelievable start. Uh, probably better than a start now, isn't it? Unbelievable form. Uh, well in the title race, I would say. And I can't wait to watch that game uh, at the Etihad after the international break. Um couple other games just to briefly touch on boys in the Prem before we move on. Uh, Wolves 2-0 uh, against Newcastle. Um, Wolves obviously resurgent a bit, Laurie, but looked like a game that had a couple of VAR decisions. I think one or two correct, but one or two maybe incorrect. What were your thoughts on them? Um, don't really care about the VAR decisions. I thought that the one that was the penalty that was given, it was Huang, wasn't it? It was given against yeah. him, was really difficult to see. And I thought, I think I personally thought it was right to stay with a referee's decision because I don't think it was clear and obvious. They looked at it so many times. Every time I see it from a different angle, it looks like it should or shouldn't be a penalty. So I'm not too worried about that. I thought it was a really good game, though. And I just want to say that Huang is my favourite Premier League player at the moment. I absolutely love watching him play. Um, and I think there's a sort of certain flair that we're starting to see from a lot of 
um, players coming over from Asia in Matoma, and obviously we've seen it in Son for years, and Huang's another one. I wanted him at Leeds a couple of years ago, and so did Marcelo Bielsa. So I've always kept an eye on him, and he's very easy on the eye. I think he's got six Premier League goals this season. I've given him a shout-out before, but he keeps on going. And the way that he took his goal, the little sort of chop with the outside of the left foot and then dragged it in the near post, was top quality. So hopefully, I mean, praise to Gary O'Neill for getting the best out of Huangy as well, or Chani, I think he calls him. And uh, yeah, look, Wolves isn't an easy place to go at the moment. And they probably should have had a few more points than they've even got. They've already beaten Man City this season. They've got a point off Newcastle. Really unlucky against Man United and should have had a penalty in that game as well. So, yeah, I, I don't think that was, um, you know, a lot of sort of disappointment from Newcastle fans in that game. But without Isaac, obviously, Tanali, we've got a Newcastle fan that's been banging on us to mention the Tanali ban. Um, he's not going to play for another 10 months now. So they've had to play a little bit more of their squad players. And to go to Molyneux and get a point under the lights, I thought it was all right from them. They're not title challenges, Newcastle, are they? They just want to be in Europe again. So I thought that was a point gain from them and a good game all round. I really enjoyed watching it. Yeah, the, the, thing, with, the thing with Wolves, I was just going to say, is um, Pedro Neto come off, didn't he, with a hamstring injury? And he's been so mm. important. He, he's been so important to them. He got the assist for the first goal. He's got seven assists in the Premier League this season, which is the most um, in the league. He's looked class. Um, yeah. I think he was injured for most of the last season as well, wasn't he? So, But, um, but I know he's he's tweeted and said that he's only going to have a few weeks out. So hopefully it's not as bad as it sort of could have been. Um, just a quick shout out to Callum Wilson. He scored twice again, didn't he? He's now scored seven in the league, an average of a goal every 60 minutes in the league. It's a joke. Um, he might not be that all-round player that Isak is, but he's a bagsman, isn't he? And um, yeah, just always scores when he plays. So, yeah, shout out to him. And qu just a quick one on the Neto one. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, that, because he is injured all the time, but that's the only reason he's still at Wolves. Because if he had a, a really good fitness record, he, he must have been at Man City or Arsenal or Man United a long time ago. Because he's not just good. He's consistently really, really good. Looks like a world-class player at times. So the only reason they've got him is because he's injured quite a lot. But I heard Gary O'Neill say as well, there's obviously a big variance in hamstring injuries. They can range from a couple of weeks to, you know, three or four months. And I think he thinks he's at the, the better end of that. So hopefully it is because he's good to watch. And um, you're right on Callum Wilson as well. Absolute bagsman. A goal every hour is very, very good for a player that hasn't played every single game and hasn't started an awful lot of games either. So very good. A few weeks out for Neto might mean that people, uh, you know, like Arsenal start to think, well, actually, we won't gamble in January because we need certainties that are going to be put in, available for the minutes to help us in a title race. So Wolves might get to then keep him for the rest of the season. So at this time of the year, January transfer window coming up might be a little bit of a uh, blessing in disguise. Um, Tom, I was just going to ask you, uh, Newcastle, the top four is obviously looking like, you know, the points for those four sides that we've mentioned, Liverpool, Spurs, Arsenal, City, uh, they're continuously winning. Um, you then got your Villas, Brightons, Man United, and then obviously Newcastle, who look like they'd be vying it out. Do you think for Eddie Howe, the ownership would be happy with a fifth place finish Europa League next year? They'd be, they definitely would be happy with a fifth place finish because I think the way the coefficient works, I, I don't know if we spoke about this. Sorry, anyway. yeah, you're right, you're right. Sorry, sixth place finish then. Um, yeah, it's not like uh, that's not too much of a backward step if they're. If they qualify from their group in the Champions League, um, putting a good showing in the last 16, depending on who they get, and they they finish, they they basically just needs to get in Europe, I think. But it's all it's all the context, isn't it? If the, if 
if with 10 games to go, they're third, and then they go on a really bad run and finish sixth, then you could see the Saudis making a making a decision where they get rid of him, even though he's finished sixth, if you know what I mean. But but I just, I just wonder if he would be Lauro victim of own success where he's gone and got Champs League first year and these Saudi owners are thinking this is this is great, this is what we want, big Champs League nights. And then suddenly the thought of Europa next year is just, you know, which for Newcastle three years ago would have been an unreal finish, will now be a bit of a, oh, not sure on that, Eddie, as a, as a season. Yeah, I'm not sure that will be meeting expectations to finish sixth when there's an extra Champions League place up for grabs this year, particularly when it looks like the competition for that fifth place is probably going to be Villa, Newcastle and Brighton. Uh, sorry, Villa and Brighton. Obviously, you'd expect Man United to come back a little bit, but we I kind of feel like Newcastle and Villa are a little bit ahead of them at the moment. A lot will probably depend also on what happens in January. If they go and back him to the hilt and he, he can go and sign Calvin Phillips and maybe one or two others to strengthen, I think, I think the remit for Eddie Howe will definitely be to finish fifth. Definitely. But I'm just looking at the Premier League table. There's a little gap there now. Villa are five points. Villa are fifth and five points above Newcastle. Everyone's played the same amount of games. So there's quite a big gap, considering there's only three points between the top four. To have five between fifth and sixth, fair play to Villa. They're sort of pulling away a little bit there and giving themselves some breathing room. Yeah, I, I I would just round up there that I think Eddie Howe would be under immense pressure if he doesn't get Champs League and they that's where the Saudi owners might then look at that kind of name to bring in and use that as an excuse of we uh, need to be a chance Murph, league. Murph, really, do we think that because the Saudi owners haven't gone out and bought this big name Robinho-style player, they've been shrewd, they've spent their money wisely on good players, on good eggs, and they've got a good manager in. I don't think that they seem like the type of owners to make those kind of decisions. Do you know what I mean? It's not. There's no evidence that they'll they'll sack Howe and bring in a Mourinho just because Mourinho's a bigger name. No, but to me, it feels like bringing in the good eggs, and I'd include Eddie Howe in that, in the appointment of him, is like the short to mid-term plan. Do you know what I mean? To sort of transition from a team that was battling relegation for a few years and even getting relegated sometimes. Before you get to challenge for the title, there's that middle bit, isn't there? And I think a lot of the players that they've got, you're right, they haven't signed big names yet, but I'm sure they will want to one day. They're going to be wanting to compete for the top names. Saudi Arabia aren't coming in spending billions of pounds. Or Saudi Arabia, um, in sport in general, don't necessarily tend to settle for mediocrity. They're going to want to be challenging. And they'll probably see the long-term vision um, coming from what they're doing now. And I, I think, we talked about it in our group chat quite a lot of Newcastle. You've got a lot of players in there that are good eggs, like your Dan Burns and maybe your Longstaffs and people like that who are really good at maybe taking on board what the manager's saying now and transitioning from that lower half team to European team, albeit they overachieved quite a lot last year. I think they'll see the long-term vision of, like Murph saying, a big-name manager with the top players in the world, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, I think just to round that up, that we also mentioned our group chat, didn't we, about the the those level of players that... Um, that eventually will need to go that are really kind of good people at Newcastle and whether Eddie Howe is the right person to do that, as you guys have just touched on, um, remains to be seen. But yeah, interesting to see them. Newcastle say that side that seemed to win one, draw one, lose one. And one pod were saying they've had a great start. Other ones were looking and saying, oh, it's just kind of on the cusp. So we'll uh, we'll look at the next few fixtures go. Obviously, as we've touched on, you boys will get to see them at Old Trafford on Wednesday. So be interesting to see what they're like with a couple of injuries. 
Just a roundup of the other Prem results, boys. So Chelsea lost 2-0 at home to Brentford. Chelsea had loads of opportunities to put the ball in the back of the net, um, but didn't. But I think, you know, kudos to you two that I think you both fancied Brentford to go and win at Chelsea and didn't think it would be an upset if they did. Uh, and that was to be the case. I will just say on that one, I'm absolutely stunned that Neil Morpai didn't put that ball into the back of the net to get his first Prem goal when he, they're running through on goal. I know he didn't square it. I know... Sanchez got back in but that's a man with zero confidence where he as a striker doesn't back himself to roll the ball into an empty net from he didn't square it he didn't square it he missed that's what I'm saying Sanchez Sanchez nicked it he wasn't that he was being unselfish he was going to score but he didn't back himself to shoot from that far out and let Sanchez back in yeah did you see the camera wheeled away but it it caught his um non-celebration basically when Mbwemo scored and he just looked absolutely fuming with himself and you would be to be fair because it's like an open goal you're going to score um, or you should score but Brentford we spoke about it on Thursday they won their previous two Premier League games there so obviously it's three out of three now aggregate score in those three Premier League games at Stamford Bridge is 8-1 Brentford have just got a way of playing and they don't mind sitting in um and Chelsea, just because of the way, basically, because they haven't got that sort of that finisher, I'll just have a look at their top scorers. And Nico Jackson scored three. Raheem Sterling scored three. They're, they're basically toothless going forward, aren't they? So if you can keep it tight, and then they're there to be counter-attacked. And I actually thought Chelsea played quite well in the first half. Um, they just couldn't get the finishing touch. And then Brentford are still in the game. And then... They go and score from a set piece or um and it's a good header for me from Pinnett. But then it's like as soon as you're one nil down, it puts more emphasis on Brentford to play that way again. Just eleven men behind the ball and then look to pick them off. So not a surprise. Chelsea look look good in spells. They're a good young team, have got a couple of good players, but they they're not ruthless enough. They definitely need to sign a striker in 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 January, I don't know who it could be. Maybe Osserman, if he he seems to be having some one or two issues at Napoli at the minute. Um, Tony from Brentford. Yeah, Ivan Tony. Yeah, that could be a good shout. Um, but yeah, which is mad to say, really, because they've spent a billion quid in the last two two years, and they haven't got they haven't got a, a function functioning striker. Um, yeah, but yeah, not surprised. And we we predicted a Brentford win, so. Yeah, 69% possession, 17 shots on goal, 10 corners, way, way, way above Brentford stats. But same old story. We must have said it on about 20 of these podcasts. Yeah. Chelsea are quite a good side. They play quite good, but they ain't got the killer touch and they need to sign a striker. And they'll keep, like I said, going two steps forward, three steps back until they do. Yeah. So rest of the action, uh, boys. So Everton won 1-0 at West Ham. Calvert-Lewin's obviously back in a bit of form. Nice to see him scoring some goals. And uh, yeah, he he. I'm sure in his head, he's thinking, A, keep Everton up, but B, that second striker position for the Euros, or maybe third if we take another one. He might think, if I can get back to the form I had a few years ago, look to get back in around uh, the England fold. Villa won 3-1 against Luton, keeping up their unbelievable form. Um, Dougie Louise is obviously playing really well there at the minute. Uh, annoy- I have Diaby in my team, so I was happy with the points there. But annoyingly, Ollie Watkins had a couple great chances to get some goals who I captained. Um, disappointing for him, but good three points for Villa. If you, Brighton- if you watch the game, though, did you see he had 
I think Zaniolo missed two sitters that would have been assists for Watkins. And I think there's one other chance for Watkins. He basically, he had his highest XG and XA of the whole of the season in that game. And he blanked. Um, so if you are worried about him, don't be. Like, it, it'll be fine. No, what I'm worried about, Tomo, is chatting with you in the group chat and saying you can't back Haaland against Man United as a United fan, and then I check your team and Haaland's got you 32 points. That's what I'm worried about. Man. Yeah, I, I knew that might come up, but in my defence, I went out on Friday night and got pissed up, so completely forgot to do my team. <laughs> yeah, um, well, it worked for you, didn't that? Yeah. Uh, just a couple of other fixtures. Uh, Brighton drew one all with Fulham, and then Bournemouth won two one against Burnley. Uh, Loro, another loss for Vincent Company. We touched on the last pod that we didn't think his job was necessarily in danger, but a couple of VAR decisions that didn't go their way, and taking a lot of time for decisions to come through that he was unhappy with. But that's a bit of a blow for them getting nothing at Bournemouth, and that. Yeah, yeah, it is. But it, I mean, it was a bigger game for Bournemouth, the Bournemouth manager, because I think he would have been gone, and I still think he will be gone soon. I think the only saving grace for a couple of those, to, if you look at Bournemouth, Luton, Burnley, and Sheffield United, there's four teams that are, are really quite bad at the moment. If if there's if there's only three, you're in trouble because obviously three go down. But whilst there's four, a win, like a win for Burnley takes them out of the relegation zone at the moment. So you just got to keep going and trying to muster up that form. Is it even for Sheffield United? Only a couple of games away from uh, relatively being in the mix for safety. So whilst four teams are cut adrift, um, it's good for for those teams at the bottom because they've always got a chance. So I mean, Company's not going to be in trouble. There's absolutely no way they'll get rid of him. I think he's got the run into the place there. Even if they get relegated, he'll still be there and he'll be the best man to bring him back up. But um, yeah, I just don't think it's worked out quite how Vinny K thought it would in the Premier League this season. I think he thought, um, I think he's misjudged the amount of changes he could make to the team and still be able to implement a successful style like he did in the Championship. And maybe the levels called it called it out a little bit. But um, you know, no no one's dead and buried at the moment. Like I said, because there's four teams down there, and I'm still not convinced from Bournemouth. But that was a big win for Iriola because, like I said, I thought he'd have got the chop um, without anything other than the win at the weekend. Yeah, and then quite a lot of the Prem teams are in EFL Cup action uh, in the week, but obviously we'll be back on Thursday. We'll look at some of the uh, key results from there and who's made it into the next round. Boys, we move on to the EFL. We'll start with the Pyramid Pod Cup, actually. So the fixture was Southampton versus Birmingham. Uh, luckily, not postponed this week. Southampton won the game uh, 3-1, so I think that's no no points, no wins in three for Rooney now, but a good win for Southampton. Um, I watched the highlights back. There are a few moments in that game. Um, so uh, is it Harwood Bellis, the centre-back? Uh, he scored the first goal. He was clearly offside. Uh, VAR would have ruled that one out. Birmingham then had uh, Ollie Burke want a flick on in the box and the Southampton keeper absolutely clatters him. Uh, and the fourth official said to Rooney afterwards that they thought it was minimal contact. That would have been overturned. Um, I think there was another one uh, decision in there as well made for it. Um, Tomo, VAR obviously gets complete slack at stick every week uh, in the Premier League and for most fixtures. But for Birmingham, who've lost that game, and there was another moment as well, uh, Plymouth versus Ipswich. Plymouth for 1-0 up. Their striker runs through. Ipswich defender makes a last-ditch tackle, gets nowhere near the ball, would have been a red card and a penalty. Um, or certainly a yellow card and a penalty and a chance for them to go 2-0 up, but it wasn't given. Do you think championship sides would have VAR if offered it? No. I hope not, anyway, because it's fucking crap. And 
those decisions you you talked about were probably wrong. But at the end of the day, unless well, there's no way of achieving perfection, is there? And football's so tribal that even if you do get perfection, half the people on like half the fans will think it's a wrong decision anyway. Um that but that Birmingham one, that Ollie Burke one was that was definitely a penalty, but but at the end of the day, that like sometimes they're given for you, sometimes they're given against you. I don't. I, I guarantee you, if you asked ninety nine percent of the fans in the championship, they would say they don't want VAR, and they would look at the way it's been implemented in the in the Premier League, and and um, they will hate it. Well, yeah, we've got we've got an EFL fan in Laurie with Leeds. Laurie, when you get to watch Leeds on, on TV, would you rather, if, have there been decisions that have gone against Leeds where you're like, fucking you know, if we had VAR, that would have been offside or we'd have done that and it really annoys you against that feeling of you score a goal and you know it's a goal and you can celebrate not thinking who stepped offside, is there a foul in the build-up, that sort of thing? No, I don't even I don't even think about that. Adam Armstrong was offside when he scored against Leeds for Southampton and they beat us that day and deserved to beat us. I did not for one minute. Did I think about that and not being funny that one where, what, what was it? The Southampton keeper clattered a Birmingham forward in the box. So Onana did that to a Wolves forward in the Premier League and it still wasn't given as a penalty. There's no guarantee you'd have got the decision on VAR. I, I definitely, definitely don't want VAR in football at all. So it's definitely not the championship. It's so lush watching the championship game when someone scores you like, like as you always have done. You might have a quick look at the ref if you think you were tight on offside, or the lion if you think you were tight on offside, and that's it. As soon as two seconds has gone past, you know it's a goal, and you're away, and you can celebrate or you can commiserate, and that's how football I think should be. And I think the Premier League's been the perfect case study to show us why we don't want VAR, not why we should want it. Yeah, no, fair point, and I I think I'm right in saying that the Carabao Cup doesn't have. VAR in it, I think, unless it's unless it's non Premier League ground um, games, but I, I think yeah, yeah, in the Premier League, like Premier League grounds, they have it. Right. Okay. Yeah. It, it it'd be interesting to watch. Like it'd be nice to watch a United game where it's like a goal's a goal. You know, not a constant. I honestly, you know, even now when United score, you can't. Not that it happens very often, but you can't really get too excited, can you? You know. You, Johnny Evans, I remember watching with Loro and um, another one of our friends. And you're like, there's nothing wrong with that. We scored from a corner that, you know, there's nothing that can go wrong there. And then before you know it, Hoyland stepped offside. It's just, yeah, you you, you boys are bang on with it. But no, it's just also as well. Also as well. I know you aren't even in the Football League at the moment. Obviously, we don't have VAR. But also for fans in the ground. Like at Yeovil, I stand behind the goal. And you'll know this, Murph. At the other end, it's actually quite hard to see what's going on. So... Even like when, if Yeovil score a goal, I look at the lino, I look at the ref to see if he's walking back to the centre circle, and I know it's a goal, and I can go mental. If we had VAR, if Yeovil was still in the championship, we had VAR, you'd be wait, you'd just be, but I wouldn't want to celebrate. You'd just be stood there yeah. thinking that could be anything. I haven't got a clue. Could be an offside, could be a handball, could have been a little foul no one noticed, and you stood there, and it must take all the fun out of football. And I always think about it watching on the TV, but as a fan going to the football, which I don't have to worry about a Yeovil, thank God, it must be horrible. Because yeah. you must there must be, even at Premier League stadiums, if you're at one end of the stadium and the attack's at the other end, it must be hard to see if it's offside or if there's anything that could be construed as a foul. So just every which way you look at it, I think it's terrible. And yeah, thank God we, thank God we don't have it below the Premier League and I hope we never do. Yeah. But uh, Tomo, we 
touched on Rooney, haven't we, and how we thought it was poison chalice, but it looks like now just a disastrous decision, another loss for them. And do you, what, what do you reckon? Gone by Christmas? Nah, I, I actually thought they weren't that bad against Southampton. Um, and actually, before Armstrong's third goal, it, I thought they would um, they would sort of nick a, nick a good point. And obviously Southampton, Russell Martin's got them playing well again and they've, they've been on a good run of form. So even though they lost again, it was probably their most impressive performance. And Rooney said afterwards, he's shown like there were signs of progress. Um, yeah, but it'd be interesting to see how he goes. Cause at the end of the day, I was having a look at the fixtures and they all look like tough fixtures. And all of a sudden, if he loses a couple more and it's five in a row, then it's like, wow. Um, yeah, and they've suddenly gone from playoffs to relegation because that's the nature of EFL leagues. Well, was it Birmingham did that with um did they we spoke about this, they sacked Rowett, didn't they? And then they yep. brought in Zola. And then yep. within the space of six months, they were gone from playoffs to relegation fight. So it might be the it might be similar, similar here. Their next two games, Birmingham, they host Ipswich and then go away to Sunderland. So that could very, very easily be five in a row. This is in a row for Rooney before the international break. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so congratulations to Southampton on being inaugural holders of the uh, Pyramid Pod Cup. So their next game is away at Millwall, actually. So, yeah, we'll preview that one on Thursday, but be looking out to see whether it remains at St. Mary's or heads off to the Den. Uh, the Pyramid Pop Cup. Move on to wider championship, boys. So Leicester maintains the pace at the top, um, as did Ipswich, which we touched on against Plymouth, but they won 2-1 away at QPR. Um, Harry Winks bent in a, a late winner for them. But, uh, Lauro, Gareth Ainsworth put out his misery at QPR. Yeah, I mean, that had, that was just a complete car crash from start to finish, really. We spoke about it last week, didn't we? I, I'm surprised it's taken this long. I think because he's a bit of a legend of a player at QPR, that's bought him a little bit of time with the ownership and the fans and stuff. But when you looked on Twitter, even his interviews, sometimes you can just tell, again, to use a Yeovil analogy, we had a manager called Chris Hargreaves last year. Hell of a nice guy. You want him to do really well, but you can just tell he isn't going to do anything. And he's a, I don't know whether it's out of his depth or whether it's just the wrong horse for the wrong course, whatever, they needed to make a change. And it in their position, which is a precarious one, um, in the relegation zone, the only manager they should be looking at is Neil Warnock. Because they, if they bring him in at this stage, lots of games to go in the championship, they're as good as guaranteed to stay up. Um, well, so I wouldn't be messing around with any managers there. Well, they're close to appointing Mar Marty Sifuentes. And I've never heard of him either. Um. Uh, good luck to the arts with that. He's a, Sp that he's sounds, a Spanish football like a disaster. He's a Spanish football coach, current head coach of Hammerby. Um, are they in like the Nordics, Hammerby? Yes, yeah, Sweden. Yeah, no, they're League One. Um, Tomo Sunderland won three one against Norwich. Uh, Jack Clark, a, a player that you've mentioned before uh, on the pod, but they. I think they lost their last game, Sunderland, but back in back with a win, and they're they're flying as well now. Yeah, and like you said, I did. I spoke about Jack Clark before. He really reminds me of um, early days Jack Grealish or Villa Villa days Jack Grealish. He looks he looks unbelievable, and I won't. I wouldn't be surprised if a Premier League club comes in from in January um, because he's that good. 
Yeah, his um, form's looking that ominous, isn't it? For yeah. Come in. Yeah, Bur- Burnley made a £15 million bid for him in the summer, which was rejected. And it's looking like the best bit of business Sunderland have ever done because they'll 100% get like 25, 30 million for him in January. Yeah. Um, Lauro, Leeds for uh, Huddersfield won. So uh, back to winning ways for Leeds and Dan James and Somerville, both with braces, looked from the highlights that I watched, looked like they absolutely tore Huddersfield apart in the first half and could have been more. Yeah, well, they say there's no easy games in the championship, but that one just stunk of an easy game. You just knew we were going to tear them limb from limb. And, I mean, Dan James and and Cree Somerville both should have had hat-tricks. Hero missed some chances. Um, And I know, like, the the highlights and the headlines this weekend will be about Dan James, who's off the mark and having a good season. Somerville looks every bit a Premier League player and is probably having his best season in the lead shirt, or definitely is this season. But Jorginho Rutter that player that we signed for 30 million last year. I can't even remember where we got him from, which was from the old regime that everyone thought was going to be a nightmare. He looks like, we, we talk about Leicester and oh, they're obviously going to do well because they've got the likes of Iniacho and that. He looks like that kind of money. Phil Hay said it this week that championship money cannot buy you and we've got him. Um, and he's just involved in everything from transitioning, from um, his pace, from his deliveries, his taking players out of the game, his presence, everything that he, and he's scored some goals this season as well. Everything that he's doing is making everyone else in the forward areas flourish. And we've got a solid platform to build from now. So, yeah, I mean, that's about as easy game in the Premier League, uh, in the Championship as you're going to get this season, I think. Darren Morse, Huddersfield, I think they're looking a little bit um, ominous for being right down there. But you can't really fault Leeds. Had a good win at Norwich, slipped up against Stoke, but fired straight back against Huddersfield and it'll be on to the big one against Leicester on uh, on Friday night. And I wouldn't want to be playing us at the moment if I was Leicester. Yeah, I think the league probably needs Leeds to win that, don't they? And just have a little bit of a closing up of that gap. Um, so, yeah, hopefully Leeds can do the business there. We spoke about Jack Clark there and potential Premier League clubs coming in for them. I think Chelsea were linked with Somerville in the summer but ended up signing Cole Palmer would that be like disastrous for Leeds if a big Premier League or any Premier League club came in for him or any of the other players in January well it depends how many but we've got a little bit of an embarrassment of riches like Willie Nonto was on the bench at the weekend do you know what I mean Jaden Anthony was on the bench at the weekend who got promoted with Bournemouth before um you know Patrick Bamford's is on the bench as well still needs to come back to some kind of form but we've got a lot of good attacking players in those areas. We've also got Lewis Sinistera, who's on loan at Bournemouth, but apparently he's hating life. Lewis Sinistera and uh, Tyler Adams, by the way, by the way, both left Leeds to go to Bournemouth um, because they didn't want to be in the Championship and they wanted to be Premier League players. But it looks like by the time Tyler Adams kicks a ball again, he's going to be back in the Championship and Leeds could well be in the Premier League. But we'll cross that bridge when it comes to it, Tyler. Yeah, well, good luck to uh, to Leeds against Leicester. Say I'm hoping that they can uh, win that and start to close that gap and make those uh, automatic promotion places look a little bit more exciting. And then just one other bit to touch on, uh, Cardiff beat Bristol City 2-0. I think it's the, is it seven-side derby, they call it. Um, but, Laurie, Nigel Pearson sacked at Bristol City. Uh, surprising one, harsh one? Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Um, I never thought they should have sat Lee Johnson, <laughs> to be honest with you. I think Bristol City were um, always punching above their weight with him. But Nigel Pearson's come and he's had no budget. He's um, been had to go. He's sort of had to delve into the youth system. He's done really, really well. Some really good players have come out of that youth team um, and have helped them. They're a mid-table team this season. That's exactly where they should be. Um, and I look today and the, the two managers they're looking at now that they're interested in is John Eustace and Gary Rowett. And I think they're both really good managers, but they're of exactly the same ilk, I would say, really, is Nigel P- I don't know what you're going to get out of them that you're not going to get out of Nigel Pearson. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but, you know, sacking Nigel Pearson to bring in Gary Rowett, for instance, just, I mean, they might as well swap managers. If I was Millwall, I'd take Nigel Pearson every day of the week. Um, but, yeah, a bit of a surprising one. I don't know what the Bristol City board were expecting from Nigel Pearson. Do you know what I mean? They must have spent one of the least amounts in the league and they're mid-table. But yeah. there we go. Just just okay. a quick just a quick one before we move move on. Um, shout out to Stoke City. Three wins in a row. All against um, promotion hopefuls. Obviously beat Leeds in the week. Sunderland last weekend. And then they've just gone to inform Middlesbrough and one 2-0. Um, they've got a couple of good fixtures coming up. Cardiff at home, Coventry away, and then Blackburn at home and QPR away. And you think if they go on a run, they'll 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 be thinking about playoffs. Every club in and around it will think about playoffs, won't they? But they've looked they've looked like they've turned the corner this last week. Three good wins. Yeah. I, I don't think they're very good. Like I've watched them and I know they beat us. I don't think they're very good. Like you say, there's a lot of teams that are much of a muchness in the championship. And sometimes you can you can string a few wins together. Okay, it was against Middlesbrough Leeds and whoever else it was before that, which is impressive. But Alex Neal's been there quite a while now, and this is the first time in the last two weeks that they've shown any sign of any life whatsoever. Um, and I just think another bad run might be around the corner for Stoke. I don't rate them at all. Like I said, I know they beat us, but sometimes I watch a team play us and I think, cool, you've got a bit. And, you know, you can see different players that are going to hurt different teams. I didn't really see that with Stoke. I think they've had a little bit of a purple patch, but I see that going the other way. Well, it's interesting. I know we do this every week with EFL leagues, but Stoke up to 11th now. Uh, five points off of fourth place, but also five points off of 21st place. So that little run of games, if they were to win them, yeah, we might be looking at up near the playoffs. But if they lose them, they're suddenly looking over their shoulders at the likes of your Rotherham's QPRs and Sheffield Wednesday, albeit a bit of a gap there. But they're one point above Bristol City and they've spent loads of money, Stoke. Brought in loads of players over the last couple of years. And they're one point above Bristol City. It's just, I can't believe he's still got a job. I think sometimes it's sort of doubling down and hoping that um, you know the longevity one pays off, but I don't. I think Alex Neal's done a bit of a horrible job there. Like I said, I, for having watched them, my gut feeling is they're going to go south rather than north. I've just um, just to finalise on the uh, championship as well. I've just had a look. Obviously, we spoke about Birmingham being in the playoffs, didn't we? I've just seen those three losses from Rooney. They're suddenly down into fourteenth, and yeah, four points off twenty-first. What a mad, mad league. Yeah, well, John Eustace still hasn't taken another job. Maybe if he thinks he waits around long enough, Birmingham will just pick the phone up and take him back. Yeah, yeah, it could be a time for Mooney Rooney to go already. Right, boys, we move on to League One. Um, Tomo Portsmouth uh, won 3-2 versus Reading to maintain uh, their great start uh, to the top of the league. But I think I've saw a couple of tweets of a helicopter in a car park and people saying it might be Mike Ashley's helicopter. Is that right? Well, he's in talks to buy Reading, isn't he? Yeah. Um, 
Yes, then. Yeah, yeah, it must have been. Yeah, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But uh, I just uh, seen what the lay of the land was on Twitter. If there was any uh, gossip about Ashley Ern. Yeah, just that he's in talks to buy them. Um, if I was a Reading fan, I'd I'd swerve that. But then their current owners are shite as well, aren't they? But yeah, look, Portsmouth. Why would you out of interest? Why would you swerve that if you're a Reading fan? What Mike Ashley? Yeah. Well, I don't think he did a good job at Newcastle. Yeah, but Mike Ashley at Newcastle was competing in the Premier League against the top top sides, and from his own admission, didn't have the money to. Yeah. Mike Ashley, Mike Ashley as a Premier League owner was only spending what the Newcastle as the business was making. So you mean he was running a profitable business? Oh no, he was only spe- he was only spending the money that Newcastle would make as a business. So yeah, in order for then he'll go into Reading and, and only spend what they make as a business. But Reading are one of the biggest clubs in League One, so what they make as a business will outdo a lot of what the other teams in League One will do. I think as a League One owner, Mike Ashley could be quite an exciting prospect. If he if they got back to the Premier League with him they're not going to go on. But Reading are never going to be a team that are challenging in the Premier League, are they? I think that might be a sneaky good... good. They're eight points off. uh, I know they had four points deduction, but they're eight points off the relegation zones now. You know, sometimes a club that is free falling through the leagues, bearing in mind they could go to League Two next year. You need an owner to come in sometime who puts his hands in a pocket. Look at the Oval owner as an example. If Yeovil just spent the money and the revenue that they made... All our players would have gone. We'd then be probably languishing a bit in this uh, National League South side. So I think Tomo's point is, is that if he isn't willing to put his hand in his pocket and he just wants to make a turnover and maybe a little bit of profit for himself, then yeah. that might not be enough for Redden. But what what putting your hand in your pocket in the Premier League looks like is 150 million quid. What it looks like in League One is two million quid. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he might, if he if he goes to buy what what do you think he's going to do? Go to buy Reading, who are eight points off relegation, not spend any money and let them get relegated. He's still going to want the business to be successful. I'm sure he'll go in there and think, look, in league in league one, we're we're one of the biggest clubs in this league. We've got a lovely stadium. I'm sure they've got great facilities. Got a good history. They've been in the Premier League. If he pumps in even a million quid in league one maybe two million quid, I'm sure that'll be enough to get them p- competing with the likes of Stevenage, who are currently in sixth. I'm I'm struggling. There's no evidence in his time at Newcastle that he was a good owner. So so if I was a Reading fan, I just wouldn't be excited at all. They might be desperate now, Reading, to be fair. If they no, I, I think you I just think you've been taken by the whole kind of um perception of Mike Ashley from Newcastle fans. It's horses for courses. Do you know what I mean? You talk about Martin Hellier at Yeovilworth coming in and putting a hand in his pocket. If he went up and ran Newcastle, he wouldn't be competing. He wouldn't be putting his hand in his pocket and buying £50 million players. He'd be thinking, Christ, we're making a few million quid here. We'll spend that on the players. I, I think Mike Ashley, for a Reading team that have obviously been ran into the ground somehow, a Reading uh, club that have been successful in the past, they've been ran into the ground since John, McG- uh, John Majewski's vacated. They're eight points off safety. No one else is queuing up to buy him. Why would Mike Ashley want to go in there and see him get relegated? Do you know what I mean? Why wouldn't what uh, I don't I think that would be quite a sensible move. I'm not saying he's going to be, you know, in 20 years time have them competing in Champions League football, but I think for a club that's bottom of League 1, I think that's someone that might be able to start sending them in the other direction. But maybe I'm wrong. Was it did Reading used to be the JJB stadium or was that Wigan? No, that was Wigan. 
They're the oh, right. Reading the Medeski, aren't they? They used to be owned yeah. by John Medeski, who kind of retired and all that, I think. And since then, things have just gone south. Yeah, well, I had a JJB slash Sports Direct pun, but yeah, hard lines, wrong club. Um, rest of the league won. Stevenage won 3 1 against Derby. Obviously, speak about Paul Warren uh, each week. And I think all three of us probably thought we'd be doing this pod speaking about him being sacked and wishing him well. But uh, Laura, looks like Derby have doubled down on the backing of him and even said they might back him in, instead given the funds to back him in January to, to carry on. So refreshing for a club to do that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's not like they're in the relegation zone, is it? They're like they've had a little bit of a bad run of form and they find themselves just outside of the playoffs. But if you're going to bring Paul Warren in, I said it before, he's done it twice before. He is someone that you could look at his back catalogue and think, right, he knows how to get out of this position with a smaller club, uh, with, out of this league with a smaller club than, than Derby, in which was Rotherham. So I think that's a good, sensible move. If at the end of the season they don't go up and they assess it and they think, look, actually, Paul, you've had a year and a half, nearly two years, and we're not seeing much improvement, then fair enough. But Definitely give him this season. And I think they've said, like you said, they're going to back him in January. Be interesting to see who he brings in. Maybe they didn't have the most successful summer. Um, I think a lot of Derby fans, especially on Twitter, have alluded to that. Maybe they can have a better January and sort of be that one that comes out the pack in League One. Because that always happens. That always happens. It's particularly in League One. Some One or two teams will be languishing mid-table and they'll put a big run, run together, get into the playoffs on a crest of a wave. And quite often that's the team that ends up winning it. Yeah. Yeah, no, hopefully, uh, as well, we don't need to say it again. Uh, Paul Warren's got the backing of this pod. Hopefully he can turn it round and, and look to get them up. Um, some of the other sides keeping pace in League One had draws at the weekend. So Oxford drew two all with Wickham. Uh, Barnsley drew two all with Fleetwood. Obviously, Fleetwood got Lee Johnson there. He just looks like he's starting to slightly turn them around. Interestingly for Barnsley, Tomo, I think you mentioned on an early pod we did about um, Devante Cole, Andy Colson. He's now top scorer in that league, up to 11 league goals. Um, and when you then look that you've got some of the names like um, Colby Bishop at Portsmouth and Jordan Rhodes, uh, Alfie May and people like that who are on nine, he's really scoring some goals now, uh, Devante Cole, and hopefully Barnsley will think he can fire them up. Um, and then just a final point as well is Cheltenham, who were obviously languishing at the bottom. It was about whether they could score a goal. I think they've since won a game. They went and won at Port Vale at the weekend as well. So it'd be really nice to see if they can make a little bit of a uh, surge up the table uh, and stave off relegation because they looked absolutely doomed. Yeah, and Cheltenham's new manager, Daryl Clark, came, his last job was at Port Vale. He did a good job of them, got them promoted. Port Vale got itchy feet, sacked him too quickly. And all the Port Vale fans after the game on Saturday were like, well done, Cheltenham. You don't know how lucky you are to have a good manager like that. So that just shows that stick behind a good man sometimes and they'll come up trumps and uh, show maybe a little bit of loyalty, particularly in a league like that where it can ebb and flow. They were chanting his name, weren't they, at the end of yeah. the game? And Exactly. And like you say, Cheltenham now have won two of the last three. Um, they put up a good show in, was it against Barnsley in the week? Uh, Blackpool, sorry. When Blackpool, it, yeah. When it was 3-2, and obviously Blackpool um, spoke about Jordan Rhodes then, a couple of good players there. Um, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see, because they were... Down and out, weren't they? Ten games, not even not even scored a goal. Was, was it? Yeah, it was ten games, wasn't it? So, yeah, um, yeah, like you say, Murph. Hopefully, they they can go on a bit of a run and they can actually stay up. That would be that would be great. Yeah, ahead of Redden now. Um, 
Redden obviously had a four-point deduction, but yeah, ahead of Redden, got Wigan up next, who they're six points behind, Fleetwood, Carlisle, Northampton all down there as well. So yeah, hopefully Cheltenham can start making a move in the right direction. Um, move on to League Two, and Tomo, we obviously spoke about the Notts County-Wrexham game. Um, Wrexham, a team you've got a, a bit of a soft spot from your, your documentary watching, but uh, a, a big win for them at, at Notts County. Yeah, tight game. Um just a quick flurry in this around the 70 minute mark um, for Wrexham to get the goals. I think McGoldrick had a really good chance to equalise just before um, Palmer scored the second to to seal the three points. But that's a great win for them um, away from home. I'm just having a look at the table now. I think they're, they're up to third now. Yeah, up to third. Um, unbeaten in, in, I think it's eight. And um, and basically, like you got Stockport won again, though, didn't they? So they look they look inevitable. They just win in every game. And actually, Mansfield, we haven't spoke about Mansfield, but Mansfield are still the only club in the whole of the EFL to be unbeaten. They've not yeah. they've not lost a game the whole season. Nineteen games unbeaten now. I think it's equal to club record. Um, they won again. So it's a, I, we say this every week, don't we? But I've got a really big soft spot for League Two. I think it's a great league. Um, but yeah, massive win for Wrexham. Yeah, and a couple of the other games and teams you just touched on there. Stockport won against uh, Tranmere 2-0. They're only five points clear there. They're absolutely flying, I know. But they seem to have won every week. I think it was something like 10 or 11 in a row uh, that they're up to. So to still only be five points clear in Notts County and Wrexham. Tomo, you just touched on Mansfield there, who beat Warsaw 2-1. They've got a game in hand and they're six points. That might be three points. You know, Stockport seem like they've got to keep up that pace of winning every game to remain at the top. But yeah, with three teams uh, going up automatically in League Two, that's going to be some fight for the rest of the season. Just, um, just a quick one on Stockport. Um, we've yeah. spoken about him a lot on this podcast, Louis, Louis Barry. <laughs> yeah. He is out for four months with a really bad hamstring injury. And that's a massive blow for them because we spoke about him being the best player in that league and he's been class for them. So for him to be out for that long with a hamstring injury, be interesting to see how well they cope with that because, well, like you say, he's he's been the best player in that league this season so far. Yeah. Yeah, but it, obviously they, I doubt they can keep that pace up for the whole season, Stockport, because... They probably win it on record points, but uh, yeah, be be man, interesting to see what happens with those teams at the top there, Laura. Yeah, I, I just think one thing worth noting is the fact that you're talking about these um championship position managerial positions that are um becoming vacant all the time. I've said before about Dave Chandler at Stockport. One thing for them, he all all he does, by the way, is get promoted. I think I've listed the teams he's been promoted with before, and if he's not promoted, he's getting to playoff finals and stuff. Surely at some point, um, someone's going to take him somewhere like the championship because he seems to like see, seems to be like he's guaranteed success and probably probably the same as well for Luke Williams at Notts County. He went in there as a novice, really, in the conference, kept toe to toe really with Wrexham all year, got them promoted via the playoffs, and now second in the league. You know, if you're a championship side like maybe Bristol City or someone looking for a, a good young manager, I'd be looking at League Two and thinking that's not an easy league to manage in. There's a lot of big clubs and a lot of big names down there. Seeing off the likes of Mark Hughes, maybe something that comes into play is some of those managers get taken away. I don't think that would be a problem at Wrexham. 
because I think they'll be getting paid an inordinate amount of money. But certainly it seems like Stockport and uh, Notts County, and I think it's still um, Nigel Clough at Mansfield. So maybe even he'll try and revisit his championship day. So maybe that'll be one to watch with all these vacancies coming up in the champ. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I guess you're right. League two managers who do well can go on to get plucked for higher leagues when teams are struggling or maybe want a bit of a push and that can derail their season. So be um, key for them to keep keep him there. Um, another team that kind of seemed to win every week in League two, but we don't talk much about crew. They went and won at Harrogate uh, 1-0. And then a team that have, well, certainly for me, come from absolute nowhere. Uh, Morecambe won 4-1 against Wimbledon. Um, which means that they've absolutely flown up through the table and find themselves now in sixth place in those playoff places. But yeah, it looks like they've won four or five in a row um, and unbeaten in their last seven. So, you know, in League Two, you put a bit, bit of a run of uh, wins together and suddenly you find yourself in the dizzy heights of the playoffs closing in on automatic. So fair play to Morecambe because, um, Lauro, you probably put me to shame here, but I don't know much about them. No, I don't know an awful lot about them, but I remember watching them in the playoffs probably two or three years ago under Derek Adams, um, and they won. Went up to League One, obviously shoe shoestring budget for that league. A club like Morecambe, Derek Adams went to Bradford. When he went to Bradford, he took one of their best players with him, Songo, a big centre midfielder, um, big presence in the middle of the park. And I'm just looking at their team from um, Saturday that beat Wimbledon four-one. That Songo's back there now in the middle of the park and Derek Adams is the manager again. So maybe reverting to the previous recipe for success will work for them again, but it's going to have to be the playoffs because they're not going to be into that top three. I don't think with the strength of those teams. Just on that, because um, I know we're still early days in the season. What's interesting about their position in sixth as well is that they are eight points off of Stockport, but they've played two less games and actually if they can get more than three points from those two games, they'd leapfrog Knox County and Wrexham. Yeah. Mansfield do also have a uh, a game in hand, but obviously, you know, as we always say in League Two, two wins and you're you're up there, two league uh, two losses and you drop out of it. If they can continue that form, you know, suddenly getting towards halfway mark in the league, they'll be they'll be right in amongst it. So fair play to them. Um, yeah, and then you look at teams that we've spoken about, like Gillingham and Swindon, who seem to be winning every week, whose form dropped off, and suddenly they're dropping outside the playoffs and starting to get caught by teams even as low in like 13th, 14th, 15th. Yeah, Mike Williamson's got back-to-back wins in his first couple of games at MK Dons as well. He came in from Gateshead, didn't he, a couple of weeks ago? So they're another team to look out for, because if he does that again, suddenly they'll be in the, you know, the, the top seven picture. Yeah, great point. And just on Morecambe, they got Barrow tomorrow, actually. Uh, another team who've, who've suddenly seemed to be making their way up through the table despite every, drawing every game they've ever had since they existed. So, yeah, fair play to them. Uh, boys, we are rapidly running out of time here, but we can't finish without speaking about uh, Yeovil, whose good form continues. I've even seen massive Twitter accounts like Football Tweet and Deadline Day Live have taken to Twitter to speak about their form, which shows how well they're doing. Uh, Lauro, torrential conditions and rain on Saturday, but the uh, steam train keeps rolling for you over. Yeah, I'm running out of superlatives, really. Um, you know, week by week, we're just looking like... I mean, our manager was able to make three changes at the weekend. He took out Frank Newball, Reese Murphy and Josh Hours, who are three of our most important and influential players. Um, a lot of people listening will probably have heard of Frank Newball, who's been at West Ham and Colchester and been an EFL player, really, for the last 10 years. Um, 
took them out, put in a, three other lads, and we still went on and won the game quite comfortably. It was really torrential conditions, but it's good to see another side of us that we can... We had it, it's two games last week, Weymouth and Braintree. It was hammering it down for both of them. The pitch is horribly cutting up, but we still managed to um, show that pluckiness to get the 2-0 the win on both occasions. Two clean sheets, six more points, six clear top at the of the National League South, 10 wins in a row, into the first round of the FA Cup, which we've got Gateshead on Saturday, um, and a big game next week against Torquay as well, who are t- already 10 points behind us. And at the start of the season, they were favourites for the league and we were second. Now we're 10 points ahead of them. And, well, we're, we're getting offered considerable cash outs from multiple bookies on our Yeovil Town um, winners' bets, put it that way. Laura, I wanted to ask you, actually, before we finish, um, I've just seen Jake Hyde scored again on the weekend and he was the one player I was most impressed with um, for Yeovil when I went to watch them against Weymouth because he come off the bench and he just, his hold-up play is unbelievable. I know you, you mentioned before at that game that he's he's sort of not quite caught, the that he's not really got a good streak in finishing, but his hold-up play was unbelievable against Weymouth. So how was he against Braintree? Yeah, it was exactly the same thing, really. They brought him on. Sometimes in those games, that's what I'm talking about. You can show a different side to you. We're a very good footballing team, but sometimes teams will adapt against us and then you've got to try and find a way of changing it again. And I don't mind seeing us go long when we've got an option like Jake Hyde's being off the bench. You can pump any ball up in the air. When Jake Hyde's on the pitch, he'll win it with his head, his chest, or we'll bring it down, and he's on with two and two now. But the options we've got up front are ridiculous. We've got Reese Murphy's always been prolific at these levels. We've got Jake Hyde, who you've mentioned, who's that big sort of target man option, but he's got three goals this season as well now. Frank Newball, who I don't think he even knows what he's doing himself, but is very, very effective. And we've also just taken Sonny Cox on loan from Exeter City, who's played eight League One games this year and is now playing the National League South with us. And he's looking a handful as well. So lots of players that can do different things. We're really good all over the park. And I do feel for the rest of the league because I do think it could turn into a procession. And I hope it does, obviously, as a Yeovilian. Yeah, great stuff. Great to see them uh, them winning. And obviously, Leeds are starting to win quite consistently as well. So if United can just pick up their side of the bargain, we'd be a very happy podcast. Um, boys, that's all we've got time for. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday. Obviously, speak about your boys' time at Old Trafford uh, and the wider EFL Cup games. There's a couple uh, EFL games that we'll reflect on as well. And then we'll look ahead to the weekend and obviously touch on Yeovil again, who I think are in FA Cup action. But pleasure as always, boys. And I'll speak to you both on Thursday. Cheers, boys. One, two, three, four.